it's good to be here this morning and uh, really enjoyed our time of, uh, of Sunday school and, and service so far, especially the uh, singing this morning. I just thought it was uh, really uh, inspiring and uh, was blessed by it. the enthusiasm <coughs> that was uh, put into the singing. Thanks, Jonathan, for sharing that, or uh, leading that. Yes, well, Prudence, I think, would, would call me to uh, give recognition <coughs> to the uh, mothers that are in the audience this morning, and uh, just want to assure you that we would like to honor you, and uh, we uh, see them as a very important part of our congregation, and we're just want to bless you this morning in a very real way. It's interesting that uh, <clears throat> the roles that mothers play in the home and the, uh, the influence that, that the, the power of their influence is really is keenly uh, sensed in the home. Your values, or maybe we could say the lack thereof, if they don't measure up to Christ's values, are imposed on your child largely by virtue of influence. Now, I know that we, we speak them at times as well, but a lot of values are transmitted by lifestyle and attitude. And uh, that's, that's sobering. And, and, and particularly, the, uh, the, yeah, just the uh, power of uh, influence in a child's life especially as they are young. If you're a person of strength and character, this virtue will be emitted in your family. If you're an individual that is anxious, critical, fearful, or subtly undermines your husband in his leadership, hence will be the attitude most likely of your family towards others. In leadership as well. If you're a person at peace, fully feminine, and gracious in your demeanor, so a positive course will be set for your children. And uh, I just want to call each one of us here today to the passage in Ephesians where it says, Children, obey your parents. In the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. I think it's right, I think it's good, that we honor our parents, particularly our mothers today. And the question that I would like to put out to you is, are you honoring your mother? And I'm not talking necessarily about giving her a phone call this morning and wishing her a happy Mother's Day or giving her a card, although that's not wrong, certainly isn't wrong. I'm talking about honoring them by your life, as a lifestyle. The way that you're presenting yourself, the way that you're raising your families, are you honoring them with a life that portrays godliness, holiness, a passion for God and righteousness? You see, this marks the true uh, distinction of honor for your parents. 
Words are cheap if it's not backed up by a lifestyle. Someone once said that the heart that honors the father or mother in this case, long after he or she is gone, is the heart that God notices. I like that. This morning I'd also like to just give a word to uh, the sisters in this audience that are not mothers, but are at a mature age where they could be mothers. And there's something intrinsic within every woman to want to hold a child and want to give birth to a child. I have a sister, obviously, that had never, actually two sisters that have never given birth to a child. <clears throat> and I know the longings of the heart. And you are no less a person that needs to be honored than those that have given birth to a child. And uh, we do honor you as well this morning. And um, we're glad you're part of us. I was, uh, I had given serious consideration about preaching a message on Mother's Day uh, or in relation to mothers, but uh, I felt like God was directing me otherwise. And so I'd like to call you back to the study in uh, New Testament Ecclesiology. And uh, the subtitle that I've given it was uh, the Ecclesia. That's the Greek word for church that we find in the New Testament. And uh, just the subtitle of Ecclesia, a function of body life. Now we've looked at the seven churches of, of, of Revelation. And we've just sort of used them as models of the kinds of churches that could be present today in, in, in our society, in our world, in a Christian world. And then from here on out, I'd like to sort of bring it in a more practical uh, way of how, how church life really functions and, and what, is, what is at the heartbeat of God when he's talking about his bride, the, the church. And... Uh, and so we just, I, I, I'm breaking out several different things this morning. I just want to sort of uh, maybe give an overview, and then we want to get maybe into some, some, just a little bit of the historical part, but that is only to help us understand where we are today. And then that is to help us understand where we want to be in the future. So... I'd like to uh, get started this morning. There's, there's a distinct voice calling in our world today for equality, particularly gender equality. In fact, on December 10th, 1948, the United Nations General Assembly adopted what is called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This historical document was drafted as a result of the atrocities that happened or came out of World War II. The international community at that time vowed to never again allow mayhem to happen like it did in World War II at this level. And so the world leaders of that day, back in 1948, got together and they decided to charter a course that would guarantee the right of every individual 
everywhere. And hence we have the universal declaration of human rights. Now, if you were to read, has anyone ever read that document? If you were to read those articles, 30 articles that they addressed, as I did, uh, on the surface, you may agree with almost every point that they uh, drafted that day. Yet 66 years later, we would need to concede that below the surface of that document lay a sinister monster that set us on a course that I think set us on a course that is unraveling the very fabric of our family units. The cry for liberation, no discrimination, inequality, is not the solution for fair treatment of all human beings. In essence, it has actually brought us to further bondage. We now have at our fingertips a generation of people, of children, whose moral compass has been reduced to doing whatever is right in their own eyes. I'm, if, if, if the, 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 the logic is that if I'm a man and I want to marry a man, that's my business. If I'm a, if I'm a girl and I choose to engage in, in sexual promiscuity or fornication, as the Bible would call it, then that's my choice. Furthermore, if the ramifications of that action brings forth life, then I have the right, you see where this is going? I have the right to abort the, quotes fetus. Man's demand for human rights has, act, has accentuated the tendency to drift away from truth rather than draw us to it. As I was preparing this, <clears throat> I, uh, something popped in my mind out of the blue. It was probably back in the late 80s. I was in construction, and I had stopped out at Bremen, at the corner of 6, uh, 106, and I think at that time it was US 6 probably, but then since I had the bypass, 106 and 131 to fill up my truck with gas. And, um, and it, that, that gas station is just sort of catty corner from the high school, and it must have been over lunch hour because I just remember a lot of the high schoolers had come over there to, I guess, buy a snack, to light up a cigarette. I don't know what all they were doing. I just remember quite a few youth were around there. And I'd just gotten there, and as I was pumping uh, my truck with gas, I noticed a young man and a young girl go into the bathroom on the outside of the building. It was on the outside of the building, and they went in there together. And they were there during the time that I was filling the truck up with gas, and then I had to go inside to pay, and yes, there was a time when we had to go inside to pay, uh, and as I came out, they finally <clears throat> came out of that room. 
Now listen, it's for two unmarried youth of the opposite gender to do that, it is sin. And we'll call it what it is. There comes a time when we have to call out sin. That is wrong for unmarried youth. And yet it happened right before my eyes in public. Now that was back in 1988. The real concerning thing is that we are now 25 years down the road. And do you know how much further we have degenerated from those, in those few years? In some ways, it's really daunting. Save for the blood of Christ, the outlook is not very bright. Because the moral compass is gone. It's everybody for myself. It's my right. It's what I want. It's what pleases me. It's what I want right now, and it doesn't matter what anybody says. Don't hold me accountable. 66 years ago, the world leaders looked, at the human, uh, looked, at, looked to human government to achieve what only can be accomplished in the kingdom of God. Hernan Santa Cruz a member of the drafting subcommittee of this document from Chile, later wrote of his experience when signing that document. Here's what he said. I perceived clearly that I was participating in a truly significant historical event in which a consensus had been reached as to the supreme value of the human person, a value that did not originate in the decision of a worldly power but rather in the fact of existing, which gave rise to the individual right to live free from want and oppression and to fully develop one's personality. In the great hall, that's where they had assembled, there was an atmosphere of genuine solidarity and solidarity and brotherhood among men and women from all latitudes, the like of which I have not seen again in any international setting. He was part of a very significant event. The question that I would have to ask is, did it help the human plight? And I think we'd all agree that it did not. You see, long before the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was drafted, God had already prescribed a path that leads to true gender equality. If we only follow the principles of that document, namely the Word of God, uh, it, it will bring equality among, among people. God had already addressed this issue long before the United Nations was formed. And he drafted that very attainable document that prescribes the relationship between the groom and his bride. I'd like for you to soak in these words as we read the text. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. And by the way, this is in Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 33. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, 
and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. If we'd stop right there, would there be any discrimination among women? That he might, might, might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Do you pick that up? He's paralleling the, the marriage, husband and wife relationship to Christ and the bride, the groom and the bride. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What a beautiful picture that Christ painted for the relationship that the church has with each other, number one, but also with him. Now, we would all agree, and you would all agree, I'm, I'm confident, that God is a God of love. Has he ever abused his bride? Ever. Now, I'm going to be honest enough with you to say that I have brought my wife to tears numerous times, and I'm not proud to say that, by my sharp words, by my attitudes, by the way I respond to her or don't respond to her, and it has crushed her spirit. God has never done that to me. He's, he's chastened me. He's disciplined me, but I've always sensed his love surrounding that. In this model, I see a distinction of roles and responsibilities in this passage. And yet I see no room for inequality. In fact, just the opposite. Love and respect gives little room for demanding rights. In fact, it is the demand of personal rights that causes love and respect to wane in a relationship. So then back to my argument about the universal declaration of human rights. If, the, if that is the premise of our value system, if the premise of my value system is to protect my rights, then according to Scripture, this Scripture, there is no basis for a relationship. In other words, the more selfish I live, the less important love and respect will be in any relationship. Now, I know that's nothing new to you, but I think it is well for us to be reminded of it time and time again. If I'm, if I'm selfish, 
if I look out for my own rights, if I look out for my protection, what's good for me and, and, and what's in it for me, love and respect go away. But when I choose to lay down my life and my wants and my desires and what is important to me, and I begin looking to my, my spouse and, and see what's good for her, you know what? She melts into my arms. Uh, th- it's not an issue of submission. I mean, she wants to submit to that when she feels and desires or she, when she experiences, is what I want to say, true love from me. There is just no problem with submission. But when I misbehave, then there's this conflict that arises between us. And I need to be responsible for that. Now, how does this all tie together in our study of New Testament ecclesiology? I want to sort of focus on the first three verses in our text. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wife be to their own husbands in everything. He, he parallels the marriage to the body of Christ, the local body of Christ, in our relationship with the groom. It is with lament that I say that there is a very disturbing atmosphere of disregard for the local church in our current religious culture. Commitments across the board are, are on a steep decline. Uh, I was surprised. Uh, I remember reading a book, I'm going to say 10 years ago, the uh, Ministry of uh, Barna Research Group uh, puts out a lot of statistics of, in, in, uh, that relate to the Christian world. And I remember reading back then how that, that there are church groups that are, that are losing masses of people that, are, are there, that quit attending, and particularly the younger generation. A lot of churches were just skeletons of no youth and older people that are trying to hold the church together. And uh, I did a little bit more research yesterday to see how, where it came to in just the last decade. I was shocked to find out that according to the research that they're putting out, the number is as low as 20% of, of Americans. Only 20% of Americans attend church regularly. Well, that's concerning to me. Now, I know, I know, I know, I know that church attendance alone does not bring about salvation. I'm very aware of that. But I will say that anyone that is bought with the blood of Christ and who is genuinely connected to the vine, Christ Jesus, will bear the fruit of his seed. And because the local body, because the ecclesia is important to Jesus Christ, it will be important to that individual. Amen. 
The bride of Christ is the heartbeat of God. The local entity is where body life is expressed. That's where it's played out. And it's important to Jesus. And it should be important to every believer. Now, I'm convinced more than ever on the concept and the function of the local body. As the bride of Christ, we are called to submit to our head, Jesus Christ. The word that we see here in verse 22 has the idea of to subordinate, reflexively to obey, to be under obedience, to put under, subdue unto, be subject to, be in subjection under. Subordination to this degree is a reflection of how well we live in accordance to the teachings of Jesus. Now I'd like for you to consider some of the passages of Scripture that we find. And there's many others. These are just a few that we find in the book of John. John 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. A couple verses down, we have another one that says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Is it possible to love God and yet not submit to him? It, it's, it's not possible. If we truly love God, we will submit to what he asks of us. If anyone loves me, Jesus speaking, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What a beautiful picture that is. Just sort of, I'm just going to sort of nestle down. You know, we go away various places. We love going out, meeting new people. We enjoy interacting with other places, other cultures. Glad and I have a love for other cultures and an interest in other cultures. But you know, there is no, there's just nothing like always coming back home and sitting in my easy chair. And that's sort of the idea that we have here. You know what? If you love me, I'm just going to come up and I'm just going to sort of pull out that easy chair. I'm going to sit down and we're just going to have some coffee together. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Subordination to Jesus Christ, the groom. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So he's given us some, con- some commandments. Verse 14 and 15, the same chapter. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you my friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Friends, if God, if Jesus is distant to you, engage him. He promised that he is your friend. But it calls for us to submit ourselves to him, to his lordship. 
And when that is in place, then we can experience what he's talking about. Notice the close relationship, the close relationship between the bride and the groom. Submission is built upon friendship. See, I cannot demand, I can demand submission, and I can even, I can even get some action to my demands, but it's not, it's not submission. It's, it's conformance. And so, Submission is built on trust and friendship. There's also another level of submission in God's economy that that uh, that we want to look at, um, and that is subordination to each other within the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We see in our text, the text that we read, <clears throat> where it's talking about submitting to one another. And then just before that, the verse before uh, our text, where our text began, that's the instruction that he gives to us. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So there we have it. This is what goes on in the body of Christ. We submit to one another, not only to God, but to each other. Philippians 2 verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambitions or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. This is what goes on in body life. First Peter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. This is scripture. This is not me talking. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then 1 Peter 2, verse 13 and 14. Therefore submit yourselves to, each, to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the kings as supreme or to governor, governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So we have the call to submit to other human authorities. Now a follow-up argument says that, hey, you know what? As long as I am connected to the universal church, that's really all that matters. I'm sure many of you have heard that argument. I'm just plugged into the universal church. Well, my friend, there is a universal church. That's true. But body life is where it's really played out. If you are not committed to the concept of local body, then your commitment to the, to the universal body is nothing more, really, than empty words. To have that life philosophy is, is really has no more meaning than for a young man who adulates over the importance of obeying parents and yet lives in open rebellion. Somehow, we need to come to terms with how we play out body life. And, and I want to be very careful how I say this. 
yet I, I really do feel like it needs to be set because I, I, I sense like there's an epidemic that is not bearing healthy fruit. And that is just in relation to, to how easy it is for us to go from one body to another body to another body to another body. And, and uh, I, I think it's something that we really need to wrestle with and come to terms with and that we, that we learn to plug into a local body even when we may not fully agree with everything that is going on. Now, uh, there, there could be a whole message, probably a series of messages. Is, is there ever the right time to leave a body? Uh, and that's not going to be addressed in this message today. What I do want to say is that think seriously about what it means to really plug in to a local body and be committed to it. You know what? You're going to be disappointed. And there's going to be things that will come up that will, that will just maybe even lurch your stomach a little bit. You know what? Stick it out. Hang in there. Hang tough. I think it's something that we're missing today in many of our churches. And again, I think it's something that we at least need to talk about. <clears throat> the reason that the universal church concept is appealing to many is because it requires very little involvement and commitment from the participant. I can do my own thing. I can go my own way. And very few are affected by my actions or responses. Now, I'd like to just bring you back again to this idea of submitting because the truth is there's a deeper meaning to this idea of submit. There's a greater connotation than what we've addressed up to this point. The Greek term uh, for this word submit uh, actually has military origins with an emphasis of being under authority, under the authority of another. But even more importantly, the term does not uh, connote a forced submission, but rather a voluntary submission to a proper authority. Um, now, some of you may squirm at the thought of voluntary submission to a human authority in the context of church life. But uh, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. I know that history is laced with too many instances where forced submission was the norm rather than the exception. One of the things I'd like to address in my next message, one of the things I'd like to develop is, like I had said earlier, is, is to take a look at, at, our, at our history of where we've come from and what has shaped how we do church today. Um... And maybe to help us understand why there may be a reaction 
to healthy church practices. Unfortunately, the record reveals how many individuals in headship misused their calling and viewed their role in terms of position rather than as a servant. And uh, that's very unfortunate, and I, I apologize for that. That should not be. Yet, chafe as we may, the fact is <clears throat> that God has set up and has put in motion an order that, that first starts with him and then filters through various levels of human servants by which the church operates. Now, look at the text again where it says that, verse 23, the Lord, the husband, <clears throat> is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now, there have been generations of people that have looked at that, and they've set up a structure of authority that went from the top down. And... Um, that is not what we're talking about here this morning. And we want to look at that. I put this next quote up in closing with, with I, I took great deliberation before I, before I sensed like I, I, it was the right thing for me to do. But I want you to think through what Watchman Nee is saying in his book, <clears throat> Spiritual Authority. He had this to say, As God's servants the first thing we should meet is authority. To teach authority is, a practical, is as practical as touching salvation, but it is a deeper lesson. Before we can work for God, we must be over, overturned by his authority. Our entire relationship with God is regulated by whether or not we have met authority. Therefore, Wherever we go, our first thought must be to find out who it is, who are those whom God wants us to be subject. To rebel at God's representative authority is to rebel against God. Now, I put this, I, 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 am, uh, I admit that uh, uh, it is very uncomfortable for me to talk about this in my responsibility here in the congregation, and I am certainly not promoting an authoritative and authorita uh, authoritarianism uh, leadership style. Jesus was very clear in Matthew 20, verse 25 through 27. It's very clear saying, you know what? That's the way the Gentiles lead. You are called to be a servant. But there are rules and responsibilities that we must come to terms with that God has set up. And, and somehow in that mix, we have not always done it right. And I'm not talking about us here, including us, but I'm talking about our past, how we have lived out church, uh, our generation's past. Uh, there's many warts and pimples that I am not happy about, <laughs> that I wish wouldn't be there. But I don't know that we can. I don't know that we can gain a clear path going forward if we don't see what has happened that brought us where we are. And so that's part of my passion here. 
I just think that one of the things that I really want you to hear is, is just bear in mind that people who are called to headship are always to be under authority. Always. I just think a proper balance of, of headship and submission will produce a premise where, where spiritual and scriptural accountability can be exercised. If we cannot come to terms with proper headship and submission, there will be a limited accountability within the body of Jesus Christ. And I'm not just talking about pastors to laity. I'm talking about to each other as well. Brother to brother, sister to sister. We've got to come to terms with what it means to submit to each other and how that is played out. When there is limited accountability, we start... When we stand on the on the precipice, I think, of a slippery slope. And I think this is where many local church bodies, how they have ended up in very heretic, just a, a state of, of apostasy, as I would see it, uh, accepting things that are clearly spelled out in Scripture, saying it's wrong to do, uh, buying in to that whole idea of, of human rights and equality. Equality in the sense of if I want to do what is wrong or what Scripture says is wrong, that's my business. I still can do that and be part of this body. And, and churches buying into that. What, what made them end up there? You see, that's not where I want to go. That's not where. That's not the passion for this congregation. We want to keep moving forward in truth and holiness and, and what God wants of us. And so how can we get there from here? That's the question. Let's pray. And I'm going to have Keith come close. Father.